Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Today, God speaks to us from Psalms 36. I have a message from God in my heart concerning the sinfulness of the wicked. There is no fear of God before their eyes. In their own eyes, they flatter themselves too much to detect or hate their sin. The words of their mouths are wicked and deceitful. They fail to act wisely or do good. Even on their beds, they plot evil. They commit themselves to a sinful course and do not reject what is wrong. Your love, Lord, reaches to the heavens, your faithfulness to the skies. Your righteousness is like the highest mountains, your justice like the great deep. You, Lord, preserve both people and animals. How priceless is your unfailing love, O God. People take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from your river of delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. Continue your love to those who know you, your righteousness to the upright in heart. May the foot of the proud not come against me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. See how the evildoers lie fallen, thrown down, not able to rise. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, have you ever jumped into a movie that other people have already started watching? Meaning they didn't wait for you. Uh, you end up joining them halfway and you very quickly realize that you have missed a lot. Uh, and they don't want to explain what's going on. They definitely don't want to have to start the movie over. And so you just sit there. Uh, and as a result, more than likely, you kind of check out uh, and you sit there confused and maybe bored. Uh, anybody else had that experience before? I'm thinking maybe some of us have. I think for many of us, Darren, all right, my man, Darren, at least Darren, <laughs> Sasha does not wait for him when he's, she's watching these. But I think for some of us, uh, the Bible ends up being something similar. We end up in a similar situation. Uh, we don't really often understand what's happening because uh, sometimes it feels like we've jumped into the middle of a movie that's already started. Uh, we're a little confused about what's going on. Uh, we aren't quite sure uh, who each character is that we're reading about. Uh, we really aren't sure about the arc of the story. And so as a result of that, we're a little lost with where we are and what's going on uh, because we have this constant feeling that we've missed something. I would imagine that many of us, as we begin reading the Bible, maybe feel something like that. Well, today we are continuing our, uh, our, our series that we've entitled The Grand Narrative. This is week three of that series where we're looking at the overarching story of the Bible so that we have a better understanding of what's being communicated in the Bible. Often we jump into reading or studying the Bible without a really good sense of what's going on um, in the grand arc of things, and so we end up kind of being a little bit confused, unsure about how to engage with what we're reading. Uh, and so our goal has really been to understand this overarching story that's within the Bible so that we can begin to appreciate all the intricacies of the story. Now, with all of that said, I cannot encourage you enough to be part of our class that's starting today. Uh, if understanding and studying the Bible is something that you want help with, um, we very much desire to help you on that journey toward studying the Bible, understanding it well. This, this entire class 
is really desi designed to take you one step further than what this current series is able to do. So if you didn't register, that's totally fine. Please just show up today. But if you have any interest in learning how to study the Bible well, please take this class. I think it will be very helpful for you. That said, though, back to our main topic of the day. We've said over the last couple of weeks that if, if the Bible were, uh, were a novel, what we've been trying to do is just take a look at the major chapters of that novel so that we have a good sense of the overarching story. And today we start the next chapter of that novel, so to speak, uh, which is the fall. The reality of sin entering into the world. Chapter one, we took a look at God as a transcendent God. Chapter two, we took a look at creation. And today we look at the fall. So let's consider the fall and the reality of sin by considering first the presence of sin, the consequence of sin, and then the heights of love. All right, so first, the presence of sin. Uh, we're going to get to our psalm in a minute, but to begin, I want to put our topic today into context. Uh, because in, So in Genesis 3, we famously see the introduction of sin. Adam and Eve, they disobey God. And in their rebellion against their creator, uh, the consequence of that ended up being sickness and death, uh, and more importantly, an alienation between themselves and God. Right? There was a breakdown of the relationship that had been uh, established between them. The notion of the fall, this introduction of sin, is pretty key to a Christian understanding of the world, of the strife, of the suffering uh, that's within it, and our need for redemption. And we will speak about that more in a minute. But I want to acknowledge something that I think is worth emphasizing. Is that we are currently in week three of a six-week series. And it's only now that we are beginning to take a closer look at the fall of humanity into sin. And I point this out because for many, I think that functionally, for many, the Bible basically starts at Genesis 3. But as we've seen, the Bible actually starts not with the depravities and the fallenness of humanity, with the, the presence of sin and uh, the presence of rebellion against a creator God, but rather the story of the Bible starts with the grandeur and the glory of a God who is beyond our comprehension. And then out of that grandeur and glory, God then creates. He's a God of creation, a God who made a world good, a world full of marvelous potential and beauty, and that he makes humanity in his image with dignity and with the ability to cultivate and curate the world. And if we don't start there, if we don't remember the heights from where we were created, I think we begin to lose sight of the significance of our fall from those great heights. That is, the fall of humanity is not some stumble of humanity, but it's a true fall. That the story of humanity is one where we start at the uh, mountaintops, but end up de uh, descending into valleys. It's where we were created to live in splendor, but then so often we end up living in a squalor. It's living in perfect justice and righteousness, but then descending into unrighteousness and injustice. The story of Genesis 1 and 2 is the story of a God creating humanity with freedom and relationship and the capacity to come alongside their creator and to work within that creation. What a marvelous gift we have been given as cultivators, curators of God's good creation. But then, of course, in Genesis 3, we see 
the beginnings of humanity's rebellion against this creator. Because what we then see is humanity saying to God, eh, no thanks to this whole following you, obeying you, submitting you to you thing. I'll do things my way and for myself, which is, of course, what we see in Genesis 3. And now the entire story, including our own story, is one of constant striving to again reach the heights from where we fell. Because we know that life should be more than what we tend to experience. We look at our lives, we look at the lives of those that are around us, and we know there must be something more than life, living to 80, if you're lucky, 90, dying, and then in the grand scheme of the cosmos, completely being forgotten. No one in 100, 200, 300 years is going to even care that you existed. There must be something more to life than that. We know it to be true. And so we spend a lifetime trying to make something of our life because we have this innate sense that, yes, we were created for more. We, we still remember the great heights from where we fell. And so before we move forward, we should at minimum acknowledge that as those made in the image of God, we have such great capacity to understand such things, but that with such capacity, right, these God-given abilities, we have chosen to use those abilities, that capacity, to reject the one who gave it to us. It's the irony of all ironies. Those who are Christians and those who are not, all people, not only turn away from their creator, but they actively use what he has given to them as the way in which they are going to reject him as creator. Uh, in uh, Romans 1, Paul confrontingly addresses this reality and, and shows how this then plays out. He puts it this way. Let me just read for you a, a section of uh, Romans 1. Paul says this, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human and birds and animals and reptiles. Interesting. Now, depending on your starting point, those statements might not mean much to you. But consider for a moment what is being argued here. Paul is acknowledging the religious impulse that is built within all of us. It's an impulse for him that leaves us recognizing that there is something more. We are unique amongst creation to know that there must be. We have this impulse to believe that there must be something more. And it's an impulse that ought to lead us to our creator, but instead often leads us away from the creator. And instead our affections begin to be um, placed upon, not the creator, but his creation. And to draw in last week, we have... Uh, we have used our sense that there is more and our ability to cultivate and to curate this world. We've used those abilities to erect other gods, other things on which we place our hope and our purpose and our meaning. And he says that we've exchanged the immortal God for mortal things. And while this is certainly literally true over the course of human history, meaning we've literally deified, right, made gods of humans and animals and the like, 
It's also been true in a much less literal sense. In the sense that we've given God-like status to all sorts of things in our lives. You know, we might not explicitly state that other humans are objects of worship, but we've definitely placed so much identity and meaning in lovers, in spouses, in children, and friends. So much of our hope is wrapped up in them that functionally, it's just worship. It's worship. We've used the works of our hands, whatever that work might be. We've made it so central to who we are, our identity. And as a result, we give our whole lives to it, believing that if we find a measure of success, then maybe we're going to find some kind of fulfillment. It's worship. I mean, even, you know, think about this. We've talked about this over the last couple of weeks. But even amongst the sciences, there are those who scoff at the notion of, of worship, of worshiping anything, and definitely would laugh at the notion of worshiping nature or the stars or something within the universe. But it's also interesting that those who scoff also functionally give their whole lives, center their whole lives around studying that which is in nature or within the universe. The birds and the animals and the reptiles, as Paul puts it, and other aspects of reality. Their hope, their meaning, their purpose are more tied up in a greater understanding, greater insight, greater clarity into that nature. And functionally, it's worship. Their, their pursuit of knowledge becomes worship. I put all this just in context for us because those words of Paul in Romans 1 are so key to all of us. We have exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images and that ability to do so is not possible without what we considered in chapter 1, which was God. Right? God, this God of great power, who then in chapter 2 uses that power to create you and me with the capacity to understand the world in which we live. And we have used that capacity to reject him and to put our affections not on him, but on things within his creation. You and I are the only ones in all of creation, with the capacity to do so. I mean, the greatest galaxies, all the way down to the smallest atoms, they all glorify God with their existence because they do exactly what they were created to do. Only humanity consciously exchanges the glory of the immortal God for images. The significance of the fall can really be only understood when we consider the place from where we fell. That God has given us much, and we have used that against him to reject him. Now, with that said, that now brings us to our psalm and some insights that I think the psalm provides us about sin and the nature of sin and what sin actually does to us, which brings us to the consequence of sin. Let me highlight some statements uh, that are quite striking to me, uh, each of which... Uh, shows us three things, I think. There's probably more that could be said, but at least three things that the psalm tells us about sin. And what we'll see in these uh, sections of the psalm is that psalm, uh, sin produces indifference, it produces blindness, and it produces more. I'll explain to you what I mean by that. So first, sin produces indifference. Look at verse 1. Verse 1 says this, There is no fear of God before their eyes. Let me just pause there for a minute. The Bible uses the phrase fear of the Lord, fear of God, uh, many, many times. You'll find it all throughout Scripture, but uses it in different ways. 
often the fear of the Lord, when it's used, is not uh, describing how we tend to think about fear, which is to be afraid. Rather, fear is another way of saying reverence or awe. For those who follow the Lord, by nature of acknowledging him, him as Lord and creator and sustainer of all things, there's a reverence, there's an awe that we ought to have before him. So in many ways, that's what the Bible's describing. A great respect, great, uh, great awe. There are, however, other times when that word fear is used in more of a literal way that we tend to use the word. And when the Bible uses the term in that way, it's often speaking about those who reject God. And as a result, fear should come. So just as an example, in uh, Hebrews 10, the author there tells us that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Other translations say that it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Why? Because God is not only the creator, sustainer of life, but he's also a judge. A judge who will judge the living and the dead, as we proclaim every Sunday. Now, in this passage, the psalmist is speaking of the former, that there ought to be this reverence and awe before God. But I put them both before us because sin actually leads us to reject the notion of either. Sin rejects fearing God, and it produces this indifference. It makes us indifferent to him as creator and sustainer. And so we lack this reverent awe of him. But also, it produces an indifference to him as judge. And we lack fear of being placed before the, his judgment throne. Both of which ought to be concerning. Now, I was reading a, a devotional on Psalm 36 uh, earlier this week, and the author made a statement that struck me. Let me just read this statement to you. It says this. It says that fearing God is not mere belief in him. It is to be so filled with joyful awe before the magnificence of God that we tremble at the privilege of knowing and serving him. So let me just pause there. So to fear the Lord, again, is to have this joyful awe before the magnificence of him. It's not just a belief in him. It's an awe of who he is. But then the author goes on and juxtaposes that joyful reverence and says, but sin shrugs at God. It is failing to believe, as failing, I'm sorry, it is failing to believe not that he exists, but that he matters. It's failing not to believe that he exists, but that he matters. Meaning, you know, when we hear that God is the creator and the sustainer of life, what does that do? Does that produce a reverent awe, or does it just produce a, eh, okay. You know, when we hear about God as a, a judge who will judge the living and the dead, does that produce a fear? Or does it just produce a, eh, okay. I mean, sin makes us indifferent to God. We shrug at God. And the way that we know the extent to which we have fallen into that indifference is to consider the second thing that sin does, which is that it also produces blindness. Uh, look at verse 2. It says, in their own eyes, they flatter themselves too much to detect or hate their sin. Interesting statement. Question. Have you ever known someone who will admit that they are self-deceived? Probably not. Why? Because the nature of being self-deceived is that one's blind to the deception. Right? There might come a time, and maybe many of us have been in this scenario before, maybe there will come a time 
when we move out of that season of deception and we can look back at ourselves and think, wow, I was so self-deceived. But such clarity only becomes, uh, comes to us because we've been enlightened to the fact that we were deceived. But what the psalmist is saying is that we are often so self-deceived through the flattering of ourselves that we are completely blind to detect or hate the sin that exists within us. You know, again, Paul, you know, drawing on um, Paul's letter to the Romans. In Romans 12, he famously encourages us to not think more highly of ourselves than we ought, but rather to think of ourselves in sober judgment. But what sin does is that it clouds our ability to think about ourselves with sober judgment. And I've seen this play out in two, different, very, two very different ways. Maybe some of this will resonate with you. I think for some, we think too highly of ourselves by rejecting the whole notion of sin or making very little of the whole notion of sin or the, the uh, presence of sin within our lives. Meaning, again, just kind of back to the shrugging. It's like, no, I'm not perfect, but I'm really not that bad. I'm still a good person, especially compared to those people. Usually we like to compare ourselves to those people, whoever those people are. There's always someone worse than us. And so as a result, we really don't take that seriously, our own sin. But there's another way that we can fall into this. There are other people who also lack a sober judgment that have the exact opposite problem. And those would be those of us who think something more along the lines of, I'm awful. There's nothing good about me. I'm such a failure. I'm such a loser. But this too lacks sober judgment. And honestly, it's just another expression of the blindness that comes as a result of sin. We just lack clarity. We are so self-deceived that we are unable to rightly, with sober judgment, see ourselves. Sin produces blindness. And in particular, we are unable to see ourselves in light of God, of his nature, of his holiness, of his perfection. And there's a direct correlation between growing, a growing sense of reverent awe of God and our ability to see ourselves rightly. In the, the same devotional that I was reading, it emphasizes this in the perfect way. I often put it this way, that the fear of God and self-understanding grow or diminish together. Let's take that for a second. The fear of God and self-understanding grow or diminish together. Indifference toward God is a form of self-conceit and self-deception. In other words, sin not only leads us to indifference before God, but that indifference blinds us to our own self-deception. But that self-deception and indifference before God, unfortunately, is not where things remain. Because once that starts, what we begin to see is that sin produces sin, which brings us to this third thing that, I'm, that we see here in the passage, is that sin also produces more sin. Once an indifference toward God starts, self-deception uh, is evident, and the cancer of sin does not just stop. Look at verses 3 and 4. It says this, that the words of their mouths are wicked and deceitful. They fail to act wisely or do good. In other words, we have disconnected ourselves from the very thing that brings wisdom and leads us to do good. Of course, that's not to say that we can't be good, we can't do wise things, but it is to say that we've lost the restraining factor necessary to resist what is evil and do good. That is why sin, once it begins only grows over time, thus leading to verse 4, where we get to a place where even on their beds, they plot evil 
They commit themselves to a sinful course of action and do not reject what is wrong. Right? It becomes a severe problem where we're laying in bed even thinking, plotting to do evil things. We can move into that realm of planning and engaging evil, not rejecting what is evil. Egregious sin and evil are so often a slow fade that begin with self-deception and a lack of the fear of, fear of the Lord. And that has been the case for those who follow and those who do not follow the Lord. This becomes a very real tension. And I think one of the primary examples, best examples in Scripture of this, uh, is King David. It's an example that I've, of course, used before. But it's interesting to me. King David was called a man after God's own heart. He followed and feared the Lord. But at a certain point, his fear of God became indifference before God. And as a result, self-deception creeps in. And the consequence was that he lost the restraining factors necessary to ensure that he resisted what was evil and uh, to do what was good. And if you know the story, his lust for a woman started with a thought in his mind, I want her, which then turned into sexual exploitation of that woman which then turned into him trying to cover up that exploitation, which then led him to murder. Sin produced sin, which produced more sin. Now, many of us, we're not going to follow that trajectory. But once we've lost that restraining factor necessary to ensure that we're able to resist evil and do what is good, it is feasible for all of us. And I think about this regularly. have this conversation with people regularly. But a healthy understanding of sin and its effects ought to give us such clarity about ourselves that all of us should be able to say, there is no evil I am not capable of if the situation or the circumstances were just right. Every one of us has the potential to be the absolute worst of humanity. Every one of us has the potential to be David's. And it's only by God's grace that any measure of evil is restrained. A man after God's own heart descends into depravities that many of us can't fathom. It's possible for all of us. If we don't believe that, I think we're probably indifferent to the effects of sin. If we don't believe that, we've probably been so self-deceived into believing that maybe we aren't as bad. We flatter ourselves. We've been so self-deceived that we're blind to what is actually Possible when that cancerous growth of sin begins to grow and take over within us. Now, with all of that said, the psalm actually does not just emphasize sin and its effects. I think it's important for us to recognize just how bad it is. Because what the psalm does next is actually then, if we can get our heads around how bad things are, what the psalm does next becomes mind blowing. Because the psalm, after articulating the depravities of sin, right, the realities of the fall, it then shifts and it begins to show us the heights of love and what that does to those who recognize the significance of the fall. Let me show you what I mean. Look at, verses, uh, look at verse 5. Let me just read for you verses 5 through 9. So after having said all that the psalmist has said about sin and its effects, Psalmist then says, Your love, Lord, reaches to the heavens. 
your faithfulness to the skies. Your righteousness is like the, height, the highest mountains, your justice like the great deep. You, Lord, preserve both people and animals. How priceless is your unfailing love, O God. People take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from, where your river of del- from your rivers of delight. For with you is the fountain of life. Your light we see. You know, I started off today emphasizing how far we've fallen. I started with the notion of it being this great tragedy that we've been given the capacity to cultivate and curate God's good creation to serve him that way. But, to, but that as a result of this capacity, we've used it to create ways to reject him. And we deceive ourselves about it. And the psalm points out, reminding us of that great tragedy, but then reminds us that as we stand before God, as we look up again at the heights from where we fell, there is nonetheless a way for us to say, I might have been indifferent to you, but your love reaches to the heavens. I have been blinded by my self-deception, but in your light we see light. I have been wicked, but I can find refuge in the shadow of your wings. What is that? What is the psalmist presenting us? What is the psalmist juxtaposing? Well, the psalmist is presenting us, my friends, the hope of the gospel. That Jesus, the one who is at those great heights, right, the one to whom we look up, does not expect us to be able to reascend back to where we once came from, but rather Jesus Christ is the one who comes down to us. Jesus Christ is the one who shows us the ways in which God does not desire to leave us in that fallen state, does not desire for us to have to work and strive to reascend back to where we came from because we never would be able to do so. Jesus Christ represents the one who is the light of the world that brings light to you and me, that we might be liberated from the blindness of our self-deception. Jesus is the one who we, uh, in whom we find refuge in the shadow of his wings. And in him, as a refuge, we are no longer left fallen, but we are given the hope that we will again experience the fullness of the great heights from where we fell. No longer alienated from God, no longer bound by the effects of sin and the fall. So that now, there's not a terrifying fear of God, when we stand before his throne, but rather a joyful awe and fear of him. God does not desire to leave us in that fallen state, but has accomplished much so that we might be invited back to the heights from where we fell. All of which is possible because of Jesus. But here's the thing. The experience of this love that reaches to the heavens the light that brings sight, the refuge of safety, all of this is ultimately for those who recognize the fall, their fallenness, recognize, right? they, they've stepped out of that self-deceit and recognize just how fallen they are. And as a result, recognize they are in need of the one 
who has come down to meet us in that fallen state. And until we recognize that need for redemption, my friends, we just end up in cycles of turning away. But in Jesus, there is restoration for what was lost, redemption for what was broken, forgiveness for our failings, and hope for things to come. This is the gospel. Psalm 36 is a wonderful place to see the full scope of what God is accomplishing. That though you are fallen, though we are sinful, though we have used our capacity to put our affections on created things instead of our creator, his love nonetheless reaches to the heavens. His light nonetheless brings sight. And there's still nonetheless refuge in the shadow of his wings for those who trust and rest in the work of Jesus, the one who has come to us. And so my prayer would be for all of us, whether you're a Christian, maybe you're still processing what the Christian faith means for you, whatever, wherever you are on that spectrum, this Psalm 36 is a reminder for you that we are sinful, broken, actively, regularly finding ways to reject and alienate ourselves from God. But in his love, in his mercy and kindness, he pursues us in Jesus, bringing us back to himself. I pray that we would hope and trust in him fully. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you are a God of great power and might. That in that great power and might you have created us with a capacity and uh, ability that is unique within your creation. And Lord, we thank you that though we have used that capacity to reject you, to dishonor you. You do not leave us in that fallen state. But rather, out of love, you've sent your Son from great heights down to where we have fallen, stepping into this broken world in which we live. And it's in Jesus that we find our hope as we trust in him, turn toward him, we find a hope that in him we can reascend back to where we fell because there's hope and redemption and restoration in his hands. Help us to trust in him, look to him, and give our lives fully and completely to him. We ask all this in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church, and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.